0: So a couple weeks ago, uh, Lindsay, my wife, and I were out on a date for date night, and I'd looked up some questions, uh, just some fun conversation starters to ask, and so one of them that I came across was, if you could write a note to yourself, your younger self, but you could only use three words, what would you write to your younger self? So I asked her this question, and without hesitation, she gazed into my eyes and said, Mary Patrick Mitchell which is absolutely not true. That is not what she said. That's sweet that you would even think that. But she chuckled, she chuckled and said, take the money. No lie, she's like, take the money, which I still interpret as marrying Patrick is like winning the lottery or something like that, Some, some sort of way that works out. But it is funny because we were thinking along the same lines because the three words that I, I mean, I didn't have to think in the moment, I had to like, I could prepare. But the three words I wrote were prioritize retirement funds. Young adults, this is what dates at forty look like. By the way, <laughs> prioritize retirement funds. Why? Because you cannot outgive later in life what you did not give earlier in life. You cannot outgive it. There's no way to make up for lost time when it comes to that. And um, and I've got there's a little chart here that I'll show you. And so I'll, I'll read this out for you. But just so you know. This is like, if you wanna be a millionaire at 65, or if you wanna have $2 million at 65, which I'm not sure how much money that will be when any of us is 65, but whatever. But if you're 20 years old and you put in $95 a month, you can be a millionaire at 65, but then it jumps. If just five years later at 25, you're doubling it to $183 a month, and then at 30, you're having to put in $340 a month, and at 35, $600 a month, just to get to that million dollar mark. And and so you can see, like, there's no way to go back and make up for what you haven't done. You also see that this wealth multiplier, this is like every $1 now, like, if you take that out over time, is about $88. So that $1, like, impulse buy at the register costs you $88. So that's just something to think about, the way that this works. And so it's because of this, this masterpiece called Compound Interest. And so you start investing, and then that works on the greater bundle and so forth until... You have whatever you're gonna retire with. So little by little, it makes a bundle. And so your future self can look back and thank your younger self for things like this, for being wise with things like this. And you can do this with other healthy habits. You can eliminate processed foods and get as close to the source as you can um, without going broke in the process. Do that the best you can. You can start lifting weights now because you realize that over, after the age of 30, your body will lose about 3 to 5% of muscle mass every every decade and even more so after the age of 60. And so if you want to be strong then you need to start getting stronger at 20, 30, 40, 50. Some of y'all are like Whew, Uh-oh. All right, so you, that's that's something your 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 body will thank you for later. But we also know there's another side to the compounding coin. So yes, investments can gain interest, but so do debts. So do debt. So debt has this own interest. And before you know it, you're doing balance transfers. You're opening another account and then another account. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul, as the saying goes. And those spending decisions compound. In the same way that poor health choices compound. So, so whatever you've digested or ingested for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, yes, you can make changes as you age that will improve your health, but you can't completely undo the compounding nature of those decisions over time. That's, just, that's not the way that it works. And so across the historical landscape of our lives we can all look back on these these moments or maybe seasons where we would tell our younger selves something like hey don't do that don't start that or maybe you should do this maybe you should start that and we would think through what we would tell our younger selves. And so whether it be health finance employment status the vitality of a relationship or your marriage we realize little by little makes a bundle for better or worse. A trade-off here, a compromise there, and eventually is going to add up. And this is what we started seeing last week in the book of Judges. And so some of you are probably familiar with a version of Edmund Burke's maxim about history. Uh, He says, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And what we're trying to do with this series is not repeat the history of Israel, is not repeat a history, this cycle of sin and suffering and disobedience and turning away From the Lord. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in Judges chapter 2, verse 20. In Judges 2, we've already seen the disobedience of Israel and this cycle that's perpetuated. And in verse 20, here's what we read The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, Because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it. That was the test, as their ancestors had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. So God holds true to God's plan. He says, I'm not going to drive all these inhabitants of the land out at one time. It's going to be little by little. And the idea was that these investments of obedience over time, on the part of Israel would compound into the blessing that God had for them, that they would experience the richness of the land and of this life together walking in the way of the Lord. And so the text is clear. This is why I'm testing you. This is why I'm not giving you everything. And I think one way to sum it up would be this. God is more concerned about formation than a destination. God is more concerned about formation than a destination. God was more concerned of who Israel would be in the land more so than just that they would get in the land. And in the same way for us, God is more concerned about your formation as a follower of Jesus than he is about a destination. And I'm not talking about heaven or hell. I'm talking about as you go into your workplaces, as you're in your friend groups, as you're on athletic teams, as you're in the dance troupe, like whatever it may be that you're doing because there are always gonna be variables in those different places. It's about who you are becoming. And will you be faithful at every turn, at every step of the way to be obedient to the plans and purposes of God, no matter what it costs you, no matter where it takes you, and no matter how long it takes you. Because one of the recurring themes that we see that we we really get kickstarted in Judges, but it starts in Genesis, is that God is okay playing the long game. He is okay playing the long game when it comes to the formation of his people and pushing against instant gratification. And so this is the testing that even comes to us. Will we be faithful? So we read on into chapter three and see that obedience wasn't the only aspect of the testing. Look at chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. This was to what? To teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle especially those who had not fought before. So again, God is already playing the long view. He says there are gonna be future generations that had no part in conquering the land, but are still gonna to need to know how to settle the land. They're gonna to need to know what it's like to fight because it's not like Israel's is gonna get settled and all of a sudden there's not gonna be any more competitors in the land. There will always be coups and wars and battles and these future generations need to know how to fight. So God says, I'm gonna leave people in the land so that these younger generations can know what it's like to grow together and work together, to know how to take the next hill, as it were. And so this testing is meant for good. The opposition that Israel faced in settling the land wasn't just about that destination, it was about formation, And we see that that hasn't changed. When we get to the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, says this, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, without the testing, without the trial, you will be lacking. If that doesn't come, there will be lack in your life as you walk with the Lord. And so this opposition is meant to strengthen our faith. There's opportunity in this. There's opportunity when our our resolve to trust the Lord is tested. There's a chance for us to grow and to remain steadfast and faithful. And that was the opportunity that Israel had, but that's not what they did. So flip back, if you would, in your scriptures to Judges chapter one. This is how the book of Judges begins. It says, after the death of Joshua... The Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. So Judah of all of the 12 tribes is chosen to go first into the land and to, to conquer and to settle their particular area. And that's what happens sort of. That's sort of what happens. But this fits with kind of this uh, prioritization of the tribe of Judah. Because if you read on through Judges and you get to the book of Ruth, you meet David's great-grandmother, and then it's through that line of David and the tribe of Judah that Jesus is eventually born. So there again, there's this long arc of redemption for the people of God that God is working through. But the word of the Lord is clear. Like it couldn't be any clearer. Who's gonna go? Judah. And he's gonna be victorious. And then we see what happens in verse three. Judah said to his brother, Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with him. Do you see how subtle this is? It's, It's incredibly subtle. This is not like all out rebellion against God, but it is a compromise. God said very clearly, Judah, you go and you'll be victorious. And Judah says, okay, how about this? How about I go to Simeon? And I get him to go with me, and then I'll chart out the rest of the path from there. Well, then we'll go to Simeon's tribe, which is not what God had said to do. And so it's subtle because it's just this little compromise. It's like when you tell a kid, hey, I need to be able to vacuum. Let's clean the floors up. And you go to the room, and you're like, oh, floor's clean, but you vacuum, and then you open the closet. And you're like, oh, I see what you did there. Like technically, the floor was cleaned, but all of the mess just got moved somewhere else just through this subtle compromise that was made. And in verse four, it looks like it worked. Look at verse four. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. And you go to read on, it's like, oh man, it's just like victory after victory. They're cutting off people's thumbs and toes. And that's in the Bible, you should read it. And so it's like all of this stuff's happening. All of it looks like it's successful. And yet what happens as this history unfolds is there are diminishing returns on the effort and the part of Israel. They begin to feel the compounding effect of their compromise and their disobedience. And sometimes we would say, well, this is partial disobedience. You know, I did most of it. And God goes, that's still disobedience. And it shows up again in verse 19 where rather than trusting the power of God, Judah, we're told they're unable to conquer this particular people because they have iron chariots. Well, turns out in chapter four, that's really no problem for Deborah as a leader, but we'll get to that. And guess who the people were that they didn't drive out? This little group called the Philistines. You ever heard of the Philistines? Israel will never not hear of the Philistines. That is the people that are a thorn in their side for the rest of their existence, it seems like, in the Old Testament. And it was because of compromises in the past that they weren't successful in the future. So it starts with Judah and Simeon, and it goes on, Benjamin fails, Manasseh fails. And I think because we resonate a little bit with Israel, there's like, there's a little bit of that in us. We're like, well, maybe they just weren't strong enough. Like maybe they hadn't been formed enough into a people. And so maybe once they get all the strength, they'll be successful. And so in Judges 128, it looks like they, are fully, they have full strength. When Israel became strong, then they forced the Canaanites out completely, right? That's what they did, they forced them out, good to go, that's not exactly what happened. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor but never drove them out completely. Israel has God on their side, all of his power, all of his provision, all of his promise. They've got numbers, they've got momentum and they compromise. Okay, yeah, we could drive them out but what if, And they start making these exceptions these compromises. And the slide of disobedience continues to Ephraim and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali and Dan. All of the tribes fail to do what God had charged them to do. And yet remarkably, God does not abandon the people. He remains steadfast and committed. But he does pull back. He does look to the people and say, listen, if you don't want the life that that I've planned and purposed for you, If you don't want a life of obedience with me, then I'm not gonna force you into it. And so God pulls his hands back and that in itself is judgment. And you can read the rest of Judges and the rest of the Old Testament and you can see that for a thousand years, the people of Israel pay a price because of the compromises of the past, because they weren't willing to do what God had told them to do. And so ever since Eden, it's like the people of God in our hearts have just been longing for that existence, to be able to walk with God, to be able to hear the voice of God clearly. And yet, the people of God, Israel, they're constantly warring against these geographical enemies. And so, the historical principle is this that what we rationalize can become our demise. What we rationalize can become our demise what we make the exception for, what we compromise, where we take the shortcuts, where we kind of, okay, God, I think this is your plan, but I'm gonna take, here's my plan attached to yours. I'm gonna kind of carry you along with my agenda. You can rationalize it all day long, but it can and will become your demise and mine. Because it's not like Israel had a council meeting. Like you don't read this anywhere where they have a council meeting and they say, okay, here's how we're going to abandon the plan of God it's just one compromise after another. And for Israel, it leads to civil war. I mean, by the end of Judges, the entire tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out. And in order for that to not happen, they kind of have a tribal council to sanction violence, murder, kidnapping, and rape. And that's how the tribe of Benjamin is to survive. So the good news is that we are not doomed to repeat history. We can learn from history because there is a compounding effect to disobedience. We see that over and over again. But the other side of the coin is that there is a compounding effect to obedience, to God's will, to God's ways, to experience his purpose. And so where then do we start if we're going to chart a better course as God's people now than God's people did then? And the first place to start, it feels like, and it's an appropriate time to do it, is to talk about who is the we that we're even talking about? What we is in question? When, when I say, what are we going to do? What we rationalize, who is the we in question? And so this requires some historical and cultural exposition as well as scriptural. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're gonna do right now because as it stands at this present moment in history, for the follower of Jesus in the United States, in America, there are two we's that tend to rise to the surface. There's a Christian we and there's an American we. There's a Christian we and there's an American we. And in spite of one's best efforts, it is difficult not to confuse the two. Agreed? It's difficult not to confuse the two. Because if you're a believer in America, it was like being born on third base. See, unlike... Uh, Christianity and even the people of Israel, Christianity in, the, in America, it, wasn't, it didn't have to struggle or strive. There weren't a lot of hardships to endure for the church to thrive here. It wasn't like Israel certainly entering this, this foreign land with all of these pagan gods and all of these people that have got to be defeated. It wasn't like the first church for Jesus and the apostles being born into this wildly pagan Roman empire And the reason for that is because in America we had this Judeo-Christian moral framework. And there was a lot of good that came from that. I mean, if if you think about this, the church in America has been a catalyst for revival and evangelism, not just in America, but for the world. The church here has sent more missionaries and mission dollars out into the world than any country in history. And it was primarily Christian leaders in America who led the march for civil rights to make a reality the idea that all men are created equal and have certain unalienable rights. And so before like, we go any further, let us all be crystal clear about one thing. The, the Christian we wants as many American we as possible to know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not on our hearts, we have a problem. So we want more people to know and love Jesus. What we're acknowledging now is what we spent four months talking about, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that there are two kingdoms. that we have this dual citizenship as followers of Jesus in the world. We are citizens of this earthly kingdoms, be that America, Uganda, Brazil, China. And yet what we've seen throughout history is that every earthly kingdom will end. Everyone. And this is why the New Testament calls believers exiles, sojourners, aliens in this world Hebrews talks about the people of faith thinking about a future better country. So we are created for something greater than these kingdoms. And this is the the kingdom of God, a kingdom without end, a kingdom that's not about politics or nationality or ethnicity. And it's this never-ending kingdom. And so where where the Christian we unites is that for all of history, past present, future, is that we unite around the fact that we are blood-bought, grace-bought, sons and daughters of God who will forever inhabit the kingdom of God with the King of kings, with the Lord of lords. That is our only hope. That is our only hope, and that is what we live for, and that is what we will die for. But there's formation taking place along the way. There's formation taking place. So how do we, as the people of God, Living in a land of God, which doesn't it feel like is moving more and more away from the plan and purpose of God? Like It doesn't feel like that's hard to see. How do we then continue to be formed into the people of God? So I've got a little little graph, I think, that'll help make sense of some of this. So this is where all of us live. Everybody lives. And this is true in biblical times. This is true now. This will be true until Jesus comes back. Everybody lives within these concentric circles. So this is you, this is me. Like we have our individual selves, individual lives. Then we have our tribes. That can be your family. Those can be your closest friendships, your closest relationships. You can be your, and that can be your church. This is your community. It can be where you work, where you play, where you just live life, your region. We tend to think regions now more than states, I think. But the region that you live in, the nation, and then the world. So it doesn't matter where you live It doesn't matter where you are a Christian, this is true. It's true if you're a non-Christian as well. And so everyone's in there somewhere. So if you are a follower of Jesus in America and you have these the, the two we's, you have your American we and your Christian we very intertwined to where it's almost hard to distinguish the two. There's a tendency to live from the outside in when it comes to how we think about being formed into the people of God. Or we think about how, how do we fight the battle against evil? How do we fight the spiritual battle? We tend to move outside in. We move from policies and politics and power up through the ranks. And when we do that, last but not least is me. Last but not least is the possibility that maybe there's something in me that's perpetuating problems around me. And so rather than thinking about media or Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or Nashville, and kind of this idea that the problem is out here, is there a way to get it back here? Because this was the approach, and some of you will remember this very well. Uh, I know my parents do, but in the the 1980s, the the moral majority, if you remember this move, it was led by Jerry Falwell. Tens of millions of dollars spent vying for the right politicians, the right policies, the right platforms, and so forth. Tens of millions of dollars. And then it sort of died away for a little bit for a few administrations, and then it's come back up in the last several years. In the version, some people call it Christian nationalism, whatever, you, whatever term that you use to help you understand what's going on that's created some different issues. But however you spin it, the way this way tends to focus on the platforms, the policies, the power, because we gotta get all of this right. And so we think outside in and I'm the last one in that progression. Now, also notice, this was something Stephen, our worship leader, pointed out um, as we went through this as a staff. The further out you go, do you have more control or less? Less. So the further out from you, the less control you have. It's It's an interesting thing. And yet, this is where the most heated conversation happens. It's where Christians get the nastiest on Facebook. Isn't it? It's out here. It's never here. Like You can show me that post, but I don't see them much. And so this is, this is we're starting to kind of, kind of think through this, this, this outside-in movement versus what you get when the distinctly Christian we starts looking at all of this out here and says, you know what? I think I actually need to start here and move this way. I'm gonna move inside out. The first battlefield, as it were, is not out there. It is within the geography of my own heart. That's where the first battle is fought. That's where the hardest battle is always being fought is right here because I know how quickly I can go the way that Israel did. I know how I compromise. I know the exceptions that I am inclined to make. And so we start there and it's like, hey, I'm attuned to the enemy's attack in my life, but also in my family's life or my friendships or my relationships or my workplace. Um, several of the commentaries I read talked about the canonization of the church, how quick God's people are to open the doors just to whatever. Yeah, as long as yeah, that, if that's good with you, that's your truth, my truth. that's fine. But hey, Jesus saves and that's OK. It's like, no. There are, there are enemy thoughts and mindsets and approaches to life that the church is tempted to let in. And so we move inside out, and this inside out movement, from here out, is how the early church grew. It's how the early church found any sort of influence in the world around it. This is how a group of 120 people launched a movement that would become the most formative influence in all of history. Think about that. This is where it started with Jesus. It was Jesus working with three, working with 12, working with local people that were closest to him. I mean, the Roman Empire, if you think about it, the Roman Empire was the greatest kingdom maybe the world's ever done, the most breadth of power, the most expansive reach, the most money when you consider everything at play. And yet Jesus comes into this kind of kingdom and plants a little seed that continues to grow into this never-ending, ever-expanding kingdom that is the kingdom of God. And he doesn't do it by going after the, the politicians and the power and the platforms. That's why some people wanted him on their side. But he says, no, I'm gonna start with the, those closest to me. And so that's what made the difference in a land. In that land was this, the, the church's faithful presence, this compounding effect. And so Christians weren't escaping into these holy huddles. In fact, when things got really dark and dim <clears throat> in the early Roman history, man, they, the Christians went into town. This is where hospitals come from. It's where schools come from. It's where orphanages come from. That's our legacy. It's not, hey, you guys fix it. It's, hey, what have we been charged to do? What do I feel God leading me to do in the midst of this, this broken world? And so it was this consistent, faithful presence. And so if you think about it, this is why we spent four months going through the Sermon on the Mount There was not one comfortable Sunday for anyone who ever watched or listened. Because you can't read the words of Jesus and walk away going, I feel pretty good about that. It's because he's changing you and he's changing me to say, then we go. Then we go. We take that transforming presence wherever we go. And so a couple weeks ago, I said, we went through this as a staff and it was very clear that there was time needed to process that there was time needed to reflect because people would come back and say, I thought more about that. This makes sense. I'm really inclined to do this and move inward. And it's true for all of us. That is the way that we are kind of inclined to move. And yet this is not the way Jesus moved. And it's not the way even that we're gonna see in just a minute that Israel was intended to move. And so in a moment, you you had these little reflective pieces, these little mirrors, cutouts, sitting around you. And there's Sharpies in the seat backs around you somewhere. And so we're gonna literally give you time to reflect. You're gonna look at your face, it's a little bit distorted, which I think is appropriate. Because we don't always see ourselves the way that God sees us, right? And so we're gonna take these, and we're gonna ride on them. We're gonna answer this question. What do I need to entrust to God? Because this was the issue with Israel. They were not entrusting fully to the Lord. What do I need to entrust to God? in order to be fully obedient to him? Not partial obedience, not sort of obedience, not eh, almost, but in order to be fully obedient to God, what do I need to entrust to him fully? Where am I making exceptions or compromises in my life? Where am I not fully expelling the enemies that are governing in the land of my heart? We're gonna name it, we're gonna write it down. It could be a habit that has gone on for too long. That's very possible be a sin, maybe you're given over to hurry in your life and busyness is the truest enemy of your heart. Like you don't have time for the people you love, you don't have time for the projects God wants you to do, you don't have time to spend with God, let alone feel like you're human. And so it's busyness. Or there's unnamed anger, you don't know why, there's just always anger under the surface and it takes just the littlest thing to set it off. Or there's bitterness growing towards someone and it's been growing for a while discontentment. I mean, I wonder how much of this, this spirit of, man, it's gonna be the next thing that makes me happy, it's gonna be the next thing that satisfied, satisfies. How much of that spirit in some of us is keeping us from acknowledging what the Lord is wanting us to do, where he's wanting us to go? It may be something so bold as, I have sensed the Lord saying, I need to do a career shift. I need to change my job. I need to quit my job, and I don't know what that means and you've been putting it off. But as we move inside out, we are following the pattern of Jesus, but we're also bringing it back to the pattern of renewal that the people of Israel were supposed to have followed. These are the words of Joshua in Joshua 24. Some of you had this on a plaque in your house probably growing up. Choose for yourselves today, which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? so you can fill in your choice of God there. As for me and my family, as for me and my house, as for that inner circle, we will worship the Lord. We will serve the God who has called us into his plans and into his purposes, who's given us an identity, and with that a responsibility to be obedient to his ways. And so we start at the center, and make no mistake, there is a battle Raging around us, but it's also raging within us. There is a spiritual battle against the dark forces of the heavenly realms. And again, I think if we could see it with our eyes, we would lose our minds. But we feel it every time we're tempted to compromise what we know the Lord is telling us and asking us to do. And yet as Christians, we fight with confidence because Jesus said, I've already overcome the world. I've already established my kingdom and it's going to become full and fixed and final. And that's why I resonate with the words of this pastor and professor. This was one of the commentaries, Eric Redmond said, we are not in a fight to maintain Judeo-Christian cultural norms. Instead, the war is about making disciples among all people and loving the Lord with all our being and loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is the war of the Christian we. It's about making disciples. It's about being fully devoted disciples to the will and the way of Jesus. So these are the marching orders of Jesus. This is our formation as the people of God. This is how future generations will know the power of the Lord and the promise that God has for him if they will follow his plans and his purposes. Whatever else may happen. Whatever else, those other things that we can't control. And it's not that we don't care. It's not that we don't vote. It's not that we don't try to, try to speak truth. But regardless of what happens out there, we control this inner part. And it's our obedience to that call that will resonate out. And so we reflect. This is the question, all right? We're gonna give you time. What do I need to entrust to God in order to be fully obedient to him? Where, where does God need a yes in your life? Where, where is he saying, will you, and you just need to say yes? Or where is he saying, will you stop? And you need to say yes. What is that space in your life? Let me pray. Our good and gracious heavenly father, We thank you, Lord. You tell us that you give us the stories of the Old Testament so that we would learn, so that we would remember, so that we would not forget. And so I pray now that as as the people of God carrying forth the plan of God, the mission of God, Holy Spirit, would you help us to reflect with clarity, with honesty, where is it in my life Where is it in each of our lives that we are not fully entrusting our lives to you? Where can we be more obedient, more faithful, more steadfast? What are the obstacles that we're not seeing as opportunities for growth and for strengthening? God, open our eyes, open our minds, our hearts, our hands. Lord, if we are clenched around anything that is keeping us from receiving more of you or more from you, God, help us to name it. Help us to name what's in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen.